Hey, y'all. Welcome back to another episode of Well-Lit Path. This week, we'll look at the fool and the ways that he proves himself a fool in his belief and his actions in Psalm 14. But first, how's your week been? I'll tell you what, the, the joys of settling into a new house, uh, waking up in the middle of the night and heading in the wrong direction uh, to get to your kitchen for some water, uh, having to remind yourself constantly to take the right exit on the way home from work. It's really about breaking these habitual movements that my mind has gotten accustomed to living at our old house. And then when you think about it, the, the Christian life's kind of like that. The closer we draw to God and the more we endeavor to be in his will, the more we desire to take new paths and get away from old habits, paths that lead to joy and peace in continued fellowship with the Father. Now, the fool, on the other hand, has no idea what that is like. Now, let's take a look in Psalm 14, beginning in verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looketh down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who eat up the people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear. For God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. If he's not a fool who refuses to acknowledge God, then who is? As we look at our culture and the way the world rejects the notion of a God and creator who created in perfection, we can see the obvious foolishness. They really do believe that there's no judgment coming for them, that no one causes the wind to blow, the sun to shine, uh, the moon to rise, the harvest, the winter. And for the atheistic center, these are all just set in motion by happenstance and then just exist in the world to be there and continue. And I do have to admit there was, a, there was a time in my life where I believed even as a Christian that God couldn't possibly lower himself to control all the ins and outs of nature as if somehow he had better things to use his power on. Almost like he wouldn't, like he wouldn't waste his power on things like that. But then, then what do I do with Job 28, 25 through 27? Uh, part of which those verses in verse 26 and 27 state, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then did he see it and declare it. He prepared it, yea, and searched it out. Or passages like Psalms 135 and in 147, which tell us in Psalm 135, verse 7, He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings for the rain. 
He bringeth the wind out of his treasuries. In Psalm 147, 8, Who covereth the heavens with clouds, who prepareth rain for the earth, who maketh grass to grow upon the mountains. And there's, there's so much more than I even have time to list here today. But the question I had to ask myself eventually is, who am I to limit the awesome power of God as if he has this finite amount of it? Our God is so much greater than our imagination. He has more than enough power to keep the earths and the planets in their orbit cause the seasons to change, and keep the oceans at bay. Yet he still has enough bandwidth and the ability to commune with each and every Christian and pursue each and every lost person. So yes, it's indeed a fool who says in his heart, there is no God. He can't prove it. He can only make up other beliefs to satiate his desire for having purpose. And how much easier to do the wicked and profane things his flesh desires if he believes there is no God. Matthew Henry aptly reminds us in his commentary on this passage that the disease of sin has infected the whole race of mankind. Not a single one of them, of us, are without corruption. There's not a one of us that hasn't done despicable and abominable works. All our works are filthy in the eyes of a righteous God, even those we would call good. How do we address this type of foolishness? Well, it's best to not engage in their debate at the level that they desire. Proverbs wisely informs us in chapter 26 and verse 4, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. What is Solomon saying here? Really all he's saying is don't let a fool goad you into a discussion that he's neither mentally or spiritually mature enough to have with you. Because if you get into that discussion with him, you've stooped to his level. Instead, place the burden of proof on the fool and allow himself to be trapped by his own foolishness. And on a side note, don't be afraid sometimes to dump a little fuel on the fire of his ignorance. Uh, sometimes in the flames of a cleansing fire, a fool may find some enlightenment as they argue themselves out of a point. We'll guide the conversation steer the conversation, but let them exhaust their supposed proofs and just prove themselves wrong. The same chapter in Proverbs in verse 11, we learn that just like a dog will go back and eat his own vomit, a fool will over and over again cling to the same rationales, the same justifications. They'll justify their actions and beliefs with, well, if I'm wrong, let God prove me wrong. Well, wrong. And he will. But a fool, as a fool, you can let him prove you wrong on this side of final judgment or be proven wrong in the final judgment. Most fools will just sit there and cite or reference the works of other like-minded fools in their arguments because they can't produce any arguments themselves. 
they'll say things like, well, science has proven this or archaeology has proven that. Well, has it? When you take up the actual study to find out and search into those things that they're talking about, what we're sure to find is that there is more substantive evidence for the creator than there is against him. But then the fool has no desire to actually take that challenge. Best to rely on the research of someone who's also been foolishly educated. And this proves the folly of the fool. Uh, Proverbs 10.8 tells us that the wise heart will lay hold on and listen to divine instruction, but a boasting or an unwilling to learn or someone who will not be proven wrong, fool, will be cast aside to destruction for his lack of willingness to listen to biblical reason. As previously stated, the fool will be proven wrong, but they don't foresee that day coming. And still the Lord sits above and looks down from on high. He searches the hearts of men. Has anyone caught on to general revelation? Has someone seen the evidence of him in the workings of the seasons, in the rustlings of the leaves? Has anyone seen the evidence of him in the snowflake, the raindrop, the lightning bolt? Have any turned and sought after his specific revelation in his spirit-breathed word? Have they allowed the general revelation to lead them to his almighty word? And have they sought for him in the pages thereof and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit understood that the reason they are seeking God is out of the need for God in their heart and in their life? That the hole they have inside them only God can fill. He is the only perfect fit for that void. But how can they seek after God if they don't want his guidance? If the general consensus is that we can do better on our own. They've crammed all of the ill-fitting objects and desires they can into that hole that they have inside of them, but only God can fit perfectly into it. So it feels complete, but it's just an illusion. There are gaps everywhere. And this is why it's never enough. It's always on to the next enlightenment, the next thing, the next cause, the next new definition of self. Proverbs 18.2 tells us, A fool hath no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. Well, they have no desire for understanding because they won't find any delight in that understanding. What delight is there in knowing that your concepts and your belief structure is foundationally flawed? It's so much easier just to let your heart discover itself. And is that not the exact mantra of today's culture? Just be you. Find yourself. Go on out there and define yourself. And in this unanchored society where we all pursue our constantly changing versions of ourselves, my, how we've gone aside out of the good path, the straight path, the narrow path. And and Paul uses this psalm, this verse in this psalm so well in Romans 3.12 as he describes our constant state. 
we were all fools. How we should pity and pray and evangelize those who are still held captive by their own foolishness. Not a single one of us can do good. Even the Christian left to our own devices and ways, turning a deaf ear to the Holy Spirit. Yes, we are still incapable of doing good. Still living in and dealing with our flesh that we, if we're truthful, we let win far more often than we should. Because I know I do. And for a people who will never be tempted above what we're able to resist in the power of Jesus Christ, we sure do find it hard to resist. When we think about the unrepentant fool, he has no guiding force within him to mitigate his desires to do evil, to serve self. How are they even to attempt good, not knowing the goodness of the Father, the God that they've rejected knowledge of? And because they can't do good, they're just the same as described in Proverbs 18.7. A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. They say they do good. They claim they try daily to tip the scales in their favor that the good outweigh the bad in their life, just, just in case there's a God. Well, or at least they used to do that. As I look around, it doesn't seem that so many of them are even doing that anymore. This has made their own argument a snare for them. Get in a discussion with a fool about how much good they can recount that may or may not be awarded to their account if what they believe to be true about whether or not there is a God isn't true and it then works the way that they say a balance of their own good and evil. Well, I don't have to worry about that because there isn't a God anyway. And that's how the circle perpetuates itself. The fool's own lips, the words they say, the lies they tell themselves become the snares that trap them into buying into their own falsehoods, their own errant beliefs. Not a one of them is even capable of doing good. They've redefined good so much that they couldn't even tell if they were doing good or not. It's good to let a woman have the right to choose whether a baby is a growth or a life. It's good to say that God has no idea what he's doing, so we'll let confused kids mutilate themselves for life with a surgery that lets them look how they feel. It's good to identify as something I'm not and lie to myself that that means it's okay for me to change myself to what I feel more like in the moment. It's good for me to redefine social norms and accepted values so that they fit my cultural or political agenda better. It's good for me to pander to a minor populist group so I can manipulate their voter base when I need them to show up in the polls. It's good for me to take God out of the government, but do what I can to interfere governmentally in what people can preach from their pulpits by allowing certain civil suits. 
Oh, the, the fool sells these things as good. Yet no person in their right mind or of a logically sound mind can readily say that any of these things are objectively good. I would argue that logically and coincidentally biblically, all of the things that I just said cannot be defined as good by a standard of sound human logic. A respect for human life is simple. It calls for a respect of all human life in every stage, from the unborn to the elderly. No one human life carries more value than the other. In nature, animals are born the way they are born as it was designed for that species for the furtherance of the species. If we allow ourselves to redefine our own gender, yet have no way to prove anatomically that this is true, logic would dictate it's not true and also dictate to us that the only way for the human race to continue would be to act and procreate as our logical birth sex dictated. And when we look at social norms, social norms and accepted values that have existed for millennia have existed as such because they are logical and are how a successful society continues in perpetuity. Rejection of or rewriting of those morals and values will only lead to complete anarchy. We'll be in a state where we're unable to even recognize good or bad. Governmentally, true democracy is governed by a majority. So how can we allow the minor voice of a small percentage of the population to dictate how we elect or choose our officials and put our laws into place? And these are simply arguments of logic. David, Paul, Solomon, they do plenty to argue spiritual points for us. So while the fool has intellect, they have no knowledge. You can have intellect without knowledge, and you can have knowledge without wisdom. Sometimes their intellect proves to be so compelling that they can eat up the knowledge a Christian has within them, and the Christian can be deceived by their intellect. It's possible for a Christian to possess knowledge without wisdom. And we see this sometimes in those kids that we send off to college who return disillusioned that what they've known all along was wrong and they now know intellectually something different, something better. But this information is devoid of knowledge or wisdom. It merely appeals to their intellect and their ego. These kids get eaten up like bread. And these fools that, that eat them up like bread, they don't call upon the Lord. They don't call upon any Lord. The only person they let control their life are, the, are their whims and their desires. What kind of life is that? To know that if you can't help yourself, then there's no help at all. That you can't rely on or call on anyone else. That if the powers of human intellect do not have an answer for you, that there's simply no answer. That's a hopeless existence if I've ever heard one. Because I can't do this myself. 
I've tried and I'm horrible at it. While life is hard and following Jesus is hard, I'm thankful I don't have to rely on my own understanding and that I can rely on and trust in him. To now be able to call out to him. To, to not be able to talk to him when I'm having a good day. I'll tell you, when I can talk to no one else, I can talk to my Heavenly Father. What would it be like to not be able to call out to Him? If I were a fool without the Father, of, of course I'd be afraid and be in fear all the time. I'd look at Christians and I'd ask, how can you be so calm in a world like today's world? Well, the Christian would say, I allow God to work in my life. He's worked in generations past and he'll work in generations to come. He's always working and because I know him and trust him, I have no fear of uncertainty. The one who holds tomorrow can also keep tomorrow and keep me in it. And the fool mocks us. They say, I don't need to rely on God. I make my own fate. The master of my own destiny. And sure, these words are true. They don't want to hear what fate or destiny they have made themselves the master of. Because the fool's fate and destiny is for sure one of their own making. Their decision to not accept the free gift of salvation from God is making hell their fate and their destiny. So let them mock us because we lean on our Lord and Savior to tell us that we're destined for peace and the presence of God in eternity. That's a fate I will gladly let someone else, someone much, much wiser than me, set for me. And what counsel has the poor given the fool? Proverbs 14, 16 says, A wise man feareth and departeth from evil, but the fool rageth and is confident. This is our counsel. A wise man fears God and departs from evil. That's the counsel of the poor. The fool is adamant about how right he is. He needs no God and mocks those that do. And Solomon has another answer for the fool who mocks. Proverbs 19.1 says, Better is the poor that walketh in his integrity than he that is perverse in his lips and is a fool. Solomon says the fool may mock the wise as they practice integrity, as they walk by faith. But in his mocking, what he's showing is foolishness with his perverse or his crooked and twisted words that escape his lips. And David in verse 7 of this psalm had not yet experienced the salvation that was to come from Zion. On this side of the psalms and of King David himself, we have. Salvation has come out of Zion. Christ has led the captive to freedom. Do you remember when you were a fool? Do you remember when all you could think of was self and that you could be and what you could make of your life? Do you remember what a struggle it was to find hope in your day? 
Were you foolish? We don't have to live there. Maybe you're still there. But salvation has come from Zion. Jacob has reason to rejoice and Israel has reason to be glad. A few thousand years later on a cool spring night, a child was born in a manger in Bethlehem. A chosen seed, a promised Messiah was born to a young man and a young woman. And this wasn't the Messiah that would yet deliver us from physical captivity as the Jews expected. Not yet. This was the Messiah that would deliver us from foolishness, our own foolishness. The the fool doesn't need to remain a fool. They can take hold of the knowledge that this child grew. This child lived sinlessly. This child didn't have a single moment where he acted like a fool. He turned all knowledge he learned into wisdom and lived his life by it. He obeyed his father lowercase f, and he obeyed his father uppercase f. He obeyed his mother. He obeyed his teachers and elders. He never once played the fool. He never once denied what he knew and was taught was true. Because he was no fool, we don't have to stay foolish. We don't have to stay foolish of the fact that he lived for us. That he lived perfectly on our behalf. We can lay hold of the knowledge that he stood trial for sins he could not have committed. That he was convicted of crimes he did not commit. That he was beaten and mangled in the most inhuman ways for us. And the Bible says that he was so messed up that looking at his face and body, you couldn't even tell it was a man. Just a lump of beaten flesh, wounded for us, heartbroken for us. He walked to a cross he did not have to walk to. He needed to. For us, it was necessary. He could have called it all off. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have slaughtered all of his accusers, all of his antagonists. And had he done that, we would have no salvation. There would be no hope for the foolish man. And as his blood ran crimson, down a wooden cross as it soaked into that cheap wood, that rough wood that stuck to him, poked into the wounds they had caused on his back, that he had to scrape his body against every time he lifted himself up to breathe. He was making a way to let us know, you don't have to be foolish. Salvation for the fool is here. You can be made one of the righteous. There's no need to be afraid. Don't worry about making your own destiny or your own fate. God has that all planned out for you already. 
Wouldn't it be easier to leave it to him? To let him make the plan? The only thing that has to change for the fool is to stop saying there is no God. Because not only did he die the cruel death of a Roman cross, Christ was buried. And in his perfection, he conquered life for us. And in his resurrection, he conquered death. And we have both sides of the victory. We have victory in life and in death. And while we were once fools with the best of them, the only thing that moved us from being a fool to being redeemed was God. I believe that you love me. I believe your son died for me. I believe that my sin and my spiritual death were conquered at the cross and then at the empty tomb. I see now that salvation has come for us and I believe in the salvation we have through your son, Jesus Christ. And now we're no more fools. Now the fool is moved to being a wise man. The difference is Christ. As long as we choose to dwell in our sin, we make ourselves fools by saying and doing so and saying, God can't care. God doesn't exist. What if he does? Are you willing to roll the dice on your eternity? All it takes is a change. Let go of your intellect. Get in the word for some knowledge and apply it with some wisdom by asking a gracious God to be merciful to you, a sinner. Fools can change. I should know. I once was one. And thanks for walking with me a little while as we read the word together. Won't you join me again next week? And we'll walk just a little further. If you like the podcast, go ahead and hit that follow button. If you have any questions about salvation or general podcast questions, uh, reach out to us via email at podcast at lakeworthbaptist.org. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Facebook by looking for LWBC underscore publications.